0: How many CEOs, they really put culture on the core of their business, on the core of their success? Well, Michael Hansen, CEO of Ampel, is one of those. He believes that culture is the number one factor to really drive success, a performance in an organization. With him, we've also spoken a lot about the importance of being a frontline CEO and putting really all your efforts to know people, to engage people, and to make sure they're really part of your journey. So let's deep dive into my conversation with Michael. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to a new episode of the World Class Leader Show. And today, finally, I've been able to uh, get with me Michael Hansen. So, Michael is the CEO, good president, the chief executive officer of Hempel in Denmark. And, Michael, joined MPL in May 2017 as a chief commercial officer and has delivered remarkable results as a central driver of the global transformation in MPL. He he will tell us a little bit more, of course, about the company and what what he's doing with it. And prior to taking on the role as a group president and CEO, Michael was part of the executive group management as executive vice president, energy infrastructure. Michael also holds a degree from Copenhagen Business School as well as an executive MBA from IE Business School in Madrid, in Spain. And Prior to joining Empel, Michael worked for almost 20 years for MERSC, another you know important and popular organization in Denmark. So, Michael, thank you for being with me on the show today. Thank you, Andre. And and by the way, we have Michael and I. It's not just you know, of course, the. The work that we do, what we have done in the past in energy, but also we have studied at the same business school, as I said. So Michael and I, we both graduated at the Instituto de Empresa Business School. I think, Michael, you did just one year after mine, but we are the same age, so very similar. So that's that's interesting. So let me start with this. You, nowadays, not so common. Essentially, you work for so many years for two organizations. And how has been for you working for so many years in the same organization, in Maersk, and then you moved to Hempel, How was the transition for you, and how was your experience working for the same company for so many years?
1: Yes, thank you very much, Andrea. No, I think working for 19 years in one company, as I did with Merck, is maybe not that common anymore. Yes. But I think the way I look at it is I break it down and saying, during those 19 years, I had three different overseas experiences in New Zealand, in Spain, and in Mexico. And I enjoyed 19 years also here in Denmark. So it was really a very different kind of experience during these 19 years. So even though looking back, it sounds like a long time, it was actually broken down into many different pieces and different learning experiences. That being said, after almost 20 years, I felt that it was the right time to try something new. And hence why I joined uh, Himble back in 2017. And you asked, how was that? it was difficult. And it was also probably more difficult than I had expected coming from one industry, one company that I knew very well, and then to a completely different company. And more than anything else, a completely different industry, where my knowledge about the customers, about the technologies, the product, the solution was very, very limited. I think I had underestimated and uh, and it took the first year, maybe even year and a half, really to get my arms around the new company that I had joined.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. And I like what you said, by the way, because you're right. So you can still work for the same company, but if you're working in different regions with a different remit and different areas in the business too, it's like working for a multiple companies at the same time, right? And and I think I felt the same when I work at the beginning my career in Saip and my junior contractors, and I work in different countries. So it was like working actually completely different uh, company to some extent, because then you get to know, you know, different cultures that come to play. Michael, so I'm curious about, so by the way, for those people in the audience today, they don't necessarily know much about Hempel. Would you mind maybe to describe what Hempel does and what is also the future that you are creating for the organization?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So Hempel is one of the largest coding and paint manufacturers and distributors, sellers in the world. We are headquartered out of Denmark. It's a 108-year-old company, but essentially active around the world. We've got customers and businesses in more than 80 countries, factories in 20-some countries, 26 factories in different uh, countries around the world, uh, but but really one of the largest coding manufacturers in the world, with a business divided into three segments – One is the maritime space. This is where the company was founded, supporting the marine industry in their quest towards decarbonization. Secondly, and what we call protective coatings, that's energy, it's infrastructure, it's essentially anti-corrosive, so avoiding uh, corrosion. And thirdly, our consumer business, one third of our business is built on direct to customers, direct to professionals, uh, for paint solutions in stores across Europe, in Australia, in New Zealand, where we manufacture and distribute under different brands depending on the country. So it's really a a portfolio business with the common core that is paint and coatings, but quite different across these three segments.
0: Yeah, and uh, I mean I've been in offshore in marine side for many years, so I, I I think I used to be a client of of Impel, especially. <laughs> Especially at some points when I was working in, in, the, in the drilling industry. So it's it's a very, very, you know, well-known brand in that sector, of course. Now you've been in a role, Michael, for, correct me if I'm wrong, by at least, you know, eight months, eight, ten months, something like that. So normally, you know, it's a, it's a common belief. And by the way, having worked with, with many CEOs is quite, I think it's quite accurate. You know, the you normally know, a CEO takes six months, more or less. You know, give or take, to have a view about his new organization. Um, he's not yet making huge decisions about changes, etc. Normally, six months is, again, it's a good time for forming, you know, a sort of good positioning, right, as a CEO, etc. And I take it you have been more than six months now. So I'm sure that you have already your thoughts about the organization, how you want to drive in the future. So what is the future, first of all, that you want to create for Hempel to make it, you know, impactful in the industry that you just mentioned before?
1: Yeah, I I didn't have the luxury of six months. I essentially had three weeks from when I started on the 15th of October until we had a board strategy day, as we have once a year, where we review the strategy in the first week of November, together with our board of directors to make sure that we are relevant and that we have the appropriate investments and the right focus. Right. So that was 3 weeks into my journey. The luxury that I did have was that I had been in the company for more than 5 years. Of course. and I'd been in the management board for the entire time. So I had a very good insight into our yes. business and also a clear perspective on both what we were doing well and what we could do better. Yes. So that meant that I knew that we needed to double down on on our earnings, on our profitability. We'd been growing quite rapidly, with a strong focus on both organic and inorganic growth. But we weren't, compared to our peers, uh, we we weren't earning enough. So relative to uh, comparable peers, our earning was uh, too modest. That was point number one. Point number two, I knew there were some uh, changes that I wanted to do in the organization. So I wanted to have a larger focus on our digital offerings, our digital solutions, both to our customers, but also to drive efficiency and scale benefits. So I took the decision to move our digital, our IT organization into the management board. I did that fairly quickly to make sure that we had the appropriate focus on our digital uh, offerings. Because when, when I say that we were not, making enough money and our profitability was substandard to our peers a lot of came from it that our cost was increasing at the same speed as our growth and one way of decelerating the cost is obviously true digital solutions so it was a natural connection between saying hey we need to improve our profitability and digital is an enabler to that so those two decisions uh, went hand in hand then i've made Two other changes to our management board. Uh, we brought a new CFO into the team who uh, joined us from another industrial company uh, just on the first of June. And we are also doing a a change in our decorative business. So there has both been some choices on the organizational side, but there has also been a very deliberate choice on our business focus in saying, if we are to maintain relevance, if we are to continue, to invest in our business while providing the appropriate dividend to our owners, we need to have an even larger focus on decoupling cost and growth. And hence, we made the decision back in November to introduce what we today call scalable operations into our um, strategy map. And that was a deliberate choice in saying we need to continue to grow at an accelerated pace, but in a more intelligent way and scalable operations across our business is a tool, or you could say a strategic pillar mm. to enable uh, a more profitable Himple in the future.
0: Right, so essentially, I mean, a couple of things that I might take away from what you said. One, the fact that you were already in a management board, you, you had already an executive position anyway, in they really help you on as on having a smoother transition as a CEO because you didn't come from outside, which makes absolutely sense. And also you have been forced anyway to drive new strategies straight away based on the ways on you know the situation that you you found. But also you made quite quickly uh, you know some changes in the management team. You mentioned the CFO. And that's interesting because sometimes, you know, especially new CEOs, they're waiting a little bit, in my opinion, too long. To change pupil management uh, board, uh, just because they want to wait and see, you know how get how things get done. But I'm, I'm clear that I'm sure that you you knew already that the, the previous leadership team because you were part of it anyway. So you had already some thoughts and ideas. So you mentioned what you are working on in. and in the part of your uh, or the future that you are creating for Hempel. What is the ambitions that you have uh, moving forward? You know, imagine the next three, five years, right? Instead of just looking at the profitability right now, you know, on cutting, costing, whenever it's necessary. But, you know, in terms of inspiring CEOs in the audience today, what is the future that you are creating for, uh, for the next three, five years for the organization? Very curious to hear.
1: Yeah, I think there's two particular aspirations. One is what we have called an industry-winning enterprise. And I think that's quite important to double down on that saying our industry is consolidating like many others. When I look back 20 years ago, many of the big players in the industry, they're no longer there. So when we look 20 years ahead, or just 10 years ahead, we want to make sure that our company comes out on top. So the aspiration of an industry winning enterprise is really important as a lighthouse for us to steer by. We want to make sure that we are amongst, let's say, the leading five companies in our industry in in a decade from now. Great. That guides some choices. Amongst other, it guides a choice in and around sustainability Mm. because there's a very strong hypothesis, you could say, in our industry that sustainability will also be determined for the companies who will come out on top. Mm. So in saying that, when we engage with our customers, it's very clear that sustainability and how we can contribute to our customers and their customers' sustainability journey is completely essential for our success in our business. So I'm linking these two saying, we want to become the sustainability leader within our industry. And in doing so, we are aspiring to become an industry winning enterprise. So those two are very closely connected. And the sustainability leadership is important also for our employees, as it is for our customers. When I look around at our uh, colleagues, what really drives engagement, what really drives energy is our quest towards becoming kind of the leader within sustainability. No matter whether you work in finance, in R&D, in supply chain. Everyone is passionate about driving sustainability. So when we have raised that flag and saying, we want to be recognized as the sustainability leader within our industry, that's something that we can rally our organization around.
0: Right. And well, that's brilliant, by the way. So such an important, I mean, I really like the, how you have described it and how you are essentially moving the entire organization towards sustainability. So... Yeah, that I think is a great approach, rather than just you know talking or writing about sustainability just to put something on the wall, or just to you know to be like you know liked or appreciated by by partners or stakeholders about what you're trying to do. You really believe, and I know it sounds like a cliche, but you really believe to people, to the people element uh, of leadership organization. And um, what is your approach to people? You 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 know just you touch on in terms of you know, sustainability leadership. But what really is the differentiation factor of Michael Hansen as a CEO towards people? What makes important your job?
1: Yeah, allow me just to take a step back and explain why I think it's so important. Because when I look at successful companies, I think there are four things in common for successful companies. One thing is to focus on people, and I'll come back to that. The other one is a strong balance sheet essentially financial robustness. Yes. The third thing is customer perceived uniqueness, that you're true, truly unique in what you can offer to your customers. And the fourth thing is about giving back to society. Nice. It could be directly or it could be indirectly, for instance, via the effort you're doing on sustainability. Yes. So those four themes I think are common for successful companies. So, right. just before I talked about the vision, the dream about becoming an industry winning enterprise, that also comes with the commitment to attracting and retaining the best people. And of course, I'm very aware that as a CEO, I'm also responsible for our culture. Hmm. I have a particular important responsibility for our culture. So, what I do is that I'm very visible in our organization. I travel a lot. I sit down with our colleagues around the world to make sure that I also understand what is their reality, not just the filtered reality that comes to my table. But when I go to China, when I go to the Middle East, when I travel around Europe, when I travel to the US, what's truly the reality of our colleagues? Mm. How is it we can enable them to be successful? Because... I really believe in that unleashing the full potential of the company is unleashing the full potential of each individual. And that's not something you do by one magic formula across 7,500 people. It's about understanding each of our leaders. It's about understanding our colleagues around the world and making sure that we have the right conditions for them to thrive. They have the resources. They have the tools, and they have the psychological safety in our company for them to thrive. So I think there are some preconditions that needs to be in place. My way of contributing to that is to be really curious, be really visible, be out there to listen whether these preconditions are are in fact uh, in place.
0: Yeah, look, it's so refreshing to hear a CEO. Primarily, I have to say, in the industrial war, because, be honest, you know, we have been in this industry for many years. When I say in this industry, I mean, you know, energy infrastructure, marine, to some extent, right? So the industrial war, and and having CEOs, they really focus their primary attention on culture and, the, and building a culture, a high performance culture based on, you know, going and talking which individual individuals. To me, it speaks highly about you, by the way, of course. It also says, you know, that's the type of CEOs that we need in the in our organization, especially for global global organization. And also, I'm a personally a strongly believer of the fact the CEO has to be a frontline CEO. And I wrote a post that was quite viral on LinkedIn about it. And I think, I think that's really is what his business is about: It's going talking with individuals without the filters that we receive from management, etc. And by the way, I have an objection that I received when I posted that I'm going to bring it back to you. So one objection, actually, few people said the same thing, said, yeah, but you have already your management team, your leadership team, that is their job to cascade in culture, to speak with the individuals, the front line. And I argued, they said, no, I think the the CEO should do it. It's not micromanaging. It's just because CEO needs to be present. And someone said, no, that is the job of the executive team. So how would you answer to this objection? I think it's
1: both. I don't think they're mutually exclusive. So the seven colleagues I have in our management board, they're as active as I am out there, and the leaders below them who are essentially running our company on a day-to-day basis, I think it's for all of us. But I accept the responsibility that I have as the CEO to be even more visible and to be a role model for other leaders in our organization, because I truly believe that if I set the right example, we also have a better chance of others to follow. And one concrete example of that is in and around gender diversity, which is a challenge in yeah. our industry. Yes. So when I look at our production, production sites around the world, we've got very few females. When I look at our sales organization, very few uh, women work in sales. So I've actively engaged myself to understand why is that. Mm. Because I'm a privileged guy. I'm the CEO of the company. So there's a lot that I don't know about the challenges that women may face in our organization and why they're not joining. Blockchain, manufacturing, uh, sales. So I spend a lot of time, both when I travel, but also here in Copenhagen, just sitting down in roundtable conversations with women and asking a few questions, sparking a conversation about how can we instill an environment where it's more attractive to join sales. And they're more than willing to provide insight into how we can address these challenges, insights that I otherwise wouldn't have if I was just leaning back, relying on other executives telling me what they see here, I'm sitting down with typically 10 or 12 women who are directly telling me, okay, Michael, if you want more women into production, we need to get all the heavy loads out of, so carrying mm-hmm. 25 kilo bags doesn't work. We need to make sure we have got separate changing rooms everywhere. We need to make sure that we have the right environment in our production size. In sales, we need to also provide the right conditions We need to when we make a job ad for sales make sure that it's an inclusive job ad where i as a woman would like to apply for this job etc etc so i've probably done 10 11 of these meetings by now over the last six months wow so that's more than 100 women i've talked with who's provided direct feedback on how we can provide a more inclusive environment So it's just to address your point, should I just only rely on the executive providing me that information? It's not enough. I also need to hear directly from the sources what is it the reality is at one of our production sites or in our sales organization or in customer service where we would like more men. So it's about minorities, right? So I'm just saying they're not mutually exclusive, Andrea. I think we should both listen to our leaders but we should also be actively listening ourselves closest to the frontline.
0: hundred percent with you. So it's not an either or actually. So it's not definitely that. Mm. So well said, I'm with you, Michael. So Michael, you, you were just, you know, touching on some of the challenges that you have, you know, you mentioned about being able to drive culture, speaking with, you know, as many as possible employees in different regions of the org- where the organization work you mentioned as well gender equality what are the typical challenges be, you know besides this and besides the, the traditional you know cost saving or improving you know revenues because you know every CEO has that sort of objective but what are the challenges primarily related to leadership people, organization development that you normally that you see right now that you have right now that keep you a little bit awake at night. Yeah. No,
1: I think, you know, all the usual stuff, cost savings, how to digitalize the business, all of that, all good, check. We have all of those challenges as well. (laughs) But I think on top of that, coming back to what I talked about before, the four conditions for being successful, giving back to society. We do that both directly via our solutions, our products, but also via our ownership. We are 100% owned by the Himble Foundation which is a yeah. philanthropic foundation giving back to society through schools and by protecting uh, biodiversity so that killer awesome. if you wish or that condition i think we're addressing fairly well and and we'll continue to focus on strong balance sheet so we've been doing up uh, or acquisitions during the last years yeah. so we clearly need to kind of deleverage and make sure that our balance sheet once again is ready to further consolidate in our industry. Number three, customer uniqueness. So here we're getting to, to the crux of it, Andrea. How can we continue to develop sustainable technologies within the coding industry where we can really differentiate ourselves from our mm. competitors? Mm. Because there are parts of our portfolio, which you could argue is commoditized. Right. Then there are parts of our portfolio, which is truly unique, where we have amazing colleagues in R&D, who worked years and years on developing unique technologies that can enable, for instance, decarbonization of the shipping industry. And and what does that mean? It means by applying the right hull coating to the ships, you can have a more efficient uh, fuel consumption of the ships, and hence reduce your CO2 emission. So here, we're really talking about something that's essential the shipping industry globally is responsible for 3% of man-made CO2 emission. Mm. If we can be a part of that solution, we want to really you know, contribute, and we're doing that. So, so this is not just a challenge for today, but also for tomorrow in continuing to stay relevant with our technologies and making sure that we are ahead of our competition, but also in tune... With future needs of our competitors uh, our customers, so so customer uniqueness is is huge, and that leads me to the fourth one, and that's the best people. So we come back to what we talked about before. I think what is really difficult today, Andrea, and what keeps me awake at night, is attracting and retaining the best people. It mm. sounds simple, and I say it's almost a slogan in every company you come into, but it's really hard because the talented colleagues of today they're on the lookout for new challenges for new opportunities all the time so we have to make sure that we are constantly enabling our talented colleagues that we're constantly creating an environment where they can thrive um, and where they can live their dreams because otherwise they leave you and we've seen that as we have had graduates coming through our company really talented colleagues all parts of the world but leaving us maybe after one two or three years because they're on to the next best uh, best thing that's costly yes it's it's money walking out the door it's opportunities walking out the door so how can we become better at retaining these colleagues by continuously providing new challenges and new opportunities And it's not as simple as it sounds, right? Because it's a very mobile workforce that we have today. It's a very ambitious workforce. um, And I really want us to become better at having that dialogue with our colleagues before they leave. Also, at the end of the work life, a 60-year-old or 65-year-old in R&D, that's like gold. That's someone who's accumulated experience over so maybe forty years. Uh, yeah,
0: knowledge, right?
1: How can we retain that colleague for a year or two more? So it's both the young people coming in, but it's also holding on to our more senior colleagues.
0: Yeah, so it's is the element of transfer knowledge, right? To to guarantee then when people at that age leave, then there is there are other people that can absorb all the knowledge they they got. So is there any specific? Activity initiative, strategic initiative that you launch in order to change the way our Hempel is able to attract uh, talents. I mean, you mentioned before giving them the space, the environment to to really to thrive, to give them opportunity. Uh, is it by I don't know, you know, just paraphrasing what you say? Is just by offering them more entrepreneurial opportunities to launch some specific projects, or 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 there is something else, in other words, that you can actually help to Im- improve retainment, but also attracting more talents?
1: I think it's a number of, let's call them the micro battles, because it's a number of activities at the same time. Right. I think more than anything else, you need to have an environment where it's nice to be in the office, where you have fun, where you feel supported by great colleagues, mm-hmm. and where you're given respect and opportunities, right? So so there's some fundamentals. It's like Maslow, right? There's some fundamentals yes. that need to be in place. And then as you move up that pyramid, it's really about continuing to have that dialogue on a very individual basis. You know, what is holding you here in our company? How can we provide new opportunities for you? And it's hard when you have 7,500 colleagues, hmm. because I'm not that naive, that we as a leadership team of, say, top 50 or top 100 can have that dialogue. But I do believe in the power of leadership all the way down through the organization and having conversations on a continuous basis, you know, where are each and every one of our colleagues and how can we continuously keep them inspired? Um, So there are the fundamentals that need to be in place, and thereafter it becomes a very individual dialogue, listening, what is it, that each of one of our colleagues are looking for in their work life because they are as different as you and I, right? Mm. Um, You know, an R&D colleague in in China is different Mm. from a production worker in Houston. And it's just no good that we think we can subscribe one formula out of a corporate office here in Denmark, but it's about instilling a leadership culture of listening, of actively engaging with our colleagues.
0: Yeah, and I agree, there is no formula. It's it's a set of activities, but I think the the great thing about what you said, in my opinion, is regardless what are the tactical strategic initiatives that you launch in order to retain and engage employees, it's more about an overarching environment culture that you created so people within the the context where they're operating, they feel good. And that that is also, by the way, a great answer to consider again, back to the point that you made before. Culture can drive performance, but can also drive engagement in employees. actually is a major driver of engagement. You know if you look at Gallup, I mean these poor guys in Gallup every single year they come up with a survey, they essentially say it's always every single year, the same thing, more or less. There's a yep. slight increase in in employee engagement across the globe, but we're still talking about twenty three percent. You know, employees feel engaged. So that is a is a systemic issue in organizations, not just in any you know in an in, in an industry. By the way, so I'm glad that you put it at the top of your agenda because that's that's really one of the major major concern of a CEO. It should be a major concern of any CEO. I like that.
1: But I also think it's a unique privilege as a yeah? CEO yes. to really be able to influence culture more than any other employee. There's no doubt about Definitely. no matter what scientific study you look at, that the CEO have got a major impact on the culture, positively and potentially negatively. Of course. So by embracing that opportunity, I believe that I can reach many more colleagues through an inclusive culture than I can on a one-to-one basis, but really by embracing my responsibility for our culture.
0: I strongly believe that people like you, Michael, you are in... An incredible positional privilege, as you just said, you can shape things, you can make an impact more than anyone else. It also sometimes I feel CEOs frustrated because they feel under pressure because they need to fight a different wars or you know within the organization. But the reality, even pressure is a privilege. You know, you Hearnier, so you have an opportunity and privilege to feel under pressure, and. Yeah, empower it and embrace it because it's negative because it might lead to stress, but it's also an incredible opportunity to make an impact and not just being one of the many CEOs that have been in the history. So I like I like what you said in terms of privilege. It's it's a great reminder for, for everyone that maybe is aspiring to become a CEO. That my only thing that that is a lot of responsibilities, is a, is a lot of stress. I'm sure that is exist. And that actually is a, is a good segue to my next question, Myself, I know quite a lot about the life of a CEO because that's my word, but, you know, many people in the audience, they don't necessarily know what does it really mean being a CEO in an organization, right? You mentioned before traveling is clearly part of your uh, your time. It's part of your journey and you deliberately decided to travel a lot, to visit, you know, colleagues. But what people don't really understand about being a CEO as, a, as an individual, as a profession, as a career... As your day, how how your day run as a CEO? I think it's really, I'm
1: the leader of the symphony orchestra, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm absolutely dependent on each and every one individual who is a part of our orchestra, right? I'm a part of it. And I'm trying to make sure that we're synchronized, but I'm deeply dependent on all the colleagues around the world who is willing to take part in this journey together with me, because without any one of them, there's very limited impact from that. There's very limited effect from yes. what I can do in kind of managing the orchestra. So I think that's important to have that humbleness, saying that what I am is, yeah, I'm privileged and I'm the leader of the discussion, so to be so to speak. But I'm absolutely dependent on being able to create followership. And to be able to create a synchronized effort across the organization and towards our customers, so I think it's important when you assume the position of a CEO that you always keep that in mind, that you work in the service of your company and in the service of your colleagues, not the other way around. And by that I mean self serve, you know. Um, I'm selflessly serving as opposed to self-serving. And I'm saying it because I think some CEO, they forget that balance at time and where it becomes more self-serving that probably the opposite. Mm -hmm. So going back to leading the orchestra, it's really about acknowledging the individual skills of each and every one in that orchestra and then make sure that they have the best conditions to be the professional that they are. I think that's the role of the CEO.
0: It is, it is. And really, it resonates with me, the description of being an orchestrator, of an orchestra that, you know, everyone needs to be at the right place, at the right time and feel great, of, you know, performing at the end of the day, you know, at at his best, right? So, and also there is an, a, a lovely quote I got from one of the previous guests, you probably hear or you know him personally, Lorenzo Simonelli, who is the CEO of Baker Hughes in in the energy sector, and Lorenzo, you I love what he said. You know, it stuck in my mind when he said, "Look, my job is really living a place better than when I when I started in this role. So if I do this, I fulfill my aspiration to leave an impact, to leave a mark to to the organization. It's pretty much what you said, you know, in being in service of others." Uh, and that's great, that's great to hear from a CEO.
1: Yeah, I think this, just following up on that quote from Lorenzo, at our recent leadership summit, I encouraged our participants, top 100 in our company, to read the book Legacy, which is about the all blacks in go. New Zealand, the, the rugby team, know. right? And, and Legacy is really about acknowledging that you put on the shirt, the rugby shirt in their case, you wear it for a while, and you take the team to a new level, and then you pass on the jersey to the next one yes. who will then carry it forward. Yes. And I think that's important that we might remind ourselves that we are a part of a very long journey, in our case in Hemboldt, 108 years. So I stand on the shoulders of the only eight CEOs that came before me. Oh, and wow. it is for me to pass on the jersey in an even better state than what I took it last year.
0: Only eight CEOs, you included, in the more than 100 years. Yeah, so eight before me.
1: And that's, of course, no, because no, the no, founder yeah. of the company uh, was the CEO from 1915 when the company was founded to his passing in 1986. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So, so but, but the point is just that we all stand on the shoulders of our predecessors, And I think it's wonderfully described in the book Legacy about the All Blacks. It's really a winning culture that they have instilled in a very small country, New Zealand, but where they have an unbeatable rugby team. And and I just think there's some analogies to business life that are uh, quite interesting there.
0: Yes, and by the way, I was going to ask you, what is your favorite book? I think you already spoiled it, which is great. So Legacy.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that that one, if I may, there's another one, which first of all, I think most management books are not very much worse. I think most management books, you read the first 10 pages and you can put them to the side. You've got the the gist of it. So I think in general, management books are overrated. However, there is a very good book uh, by... um, James Allen from Bain Founders Mentality that I often use in business life as well, because it talks about this very critical journey where you're scaling your company, but also where complexity is coming into the company. So it's talking about how the complexity is killing the value of scale. In other words, as companies that grow larger and larger, we are an unscalable founder, oh, right? Yes. And, and, oh, yes. and I just think it's important to keep that thinking in mind, the founder's mentality or the frontline obsession as they're talking about, because otherwise large companies have a tendency to close themselves around themselves and focus more on the internal bureaucracy as opposed to really looking outwards and making sure that we are, a scalable uh, company and where we're benefiting from our growth.
0: Yeah, and that book actually, that book is a benefit for any sort of organization. So it's not just a smaller company. So I had actually on the show, we just recorded, so we'll be live in a few weeks, uh, Talal Shamun, who is the CEO of InterTrust in Silicon Valley. And he mentioned about scalability, the relation between scalability and number of resources. That was quite interesting because that's his pretty much aligned with what we are saying. That's amazing, Michael. The last two questions for you, just a little bit to understanding your, some sort of your reflection, you know, looking back at your career. Is there one single learning that you would like to share with the audience about your career, your profession, that could be useful for people to know?
1: I think one is to be curious. So I've had the benefit of being 10 years outside my own country. And you just learn so much from being exposed to new cultures, other kind of businesses. And so, so really being curious, you mentioned in the introduction that I took my executive MBA at the IE Business School in Madrid. But essentially, it was a school where people came together from all over the world. And we then visited universities around the world with new learning, be it at Brown University in the U.S. or SMU in Singapore in Sao Paulo in Brazil, so the Executive MBA was just unfolding so much new learning as my work does as well when I travel, when I've lived overseas, so really being curious and embracing
0: new perspectives and new people. Without without actually judgment, right? Without judgment. Very true. Very true, very right? True. So. I've been in your shoes too. I mean, uh, all my career has been in in different places of the world. So if you approach with a mentality of listening, be curious, without judgment, definitely their ability to learn, it gets exponential. So 100% with you, Michael. On the other hand, is there anything else that you would have done differently in your career looking back?
1: No, I I, I don't look in the rear view mirror. I think there's a wonderful quote from uh, Colin Powell, the former... U.S. Secretary of State, where he said, you know, never look in the rearview mirror, always look ahead. And I think it's a wise quote because you can't change the past. I've had a fabulous career, learned from really, really skilled colleagues around the world. So I've got no regrets. The only thing that's important to remember is to always enjoy the present. Mm. I think at times I've looked too much ahead at the next step and the next step and the next step as opposed to just enjoy the present. And that's what I'm constantly reminding myself of, enjoying the present, enjoying today, enjoying the job, the colleagues, the family that I'm enjoying today, and not focus so much on what comes tomorrow or the day day after.
0: I know, I've been there. And I think it's when you grow up normally after the forties, I noticed that you finally start to get some sort of balance and more harmony with yourself. You know, rather than stopping and chasing all opportunity just for you know personal ambition, et cetera. So very, very well said. Michael, where people should go to to know a little bit more about you and the company? By the way, we have not the audience, potentially customers, investors, but most importantly, talents. Maybe, you know, up and coming times they want to join Hempel or following you. So where people should go?
1: Yeah, follow me on LinkedIn uh, or follow our company, Hempel, on LinkedIn as well. We post uh, our activities. I post my thoughts, pictures from travels, and so. so. very welcome to follow me on LinkedIn and follow our company, Hempel, on LinkedIn.
0: That's great. And I think the great thing about Michael, in my opinion, that he is a CEO that's, I, I can say, you know, with the, you know, it's an, it's an assumption, of course, but I can feel that any talent that they want to work with, with an inspiring CEO, I think I can find Hempel the right place to work